Hello friends, you are welcome to Nationhood Podcast and to bonus episode 1, The Struggle for China. In the last two episodes, we discussed the struggle between absolutism and liberalism in 19th century Europe. This was a contest between those who wanted monarchs to rule with absolute forms of power and those who wanted the rule of the people through mechanisms like the right to vote, elections and constitutions. During the 19th century, political tensions in Europe combined with sociocultural and economic factors to fuel calls for nationhood. As a matter of fact, similar arguments were going on elsewhere. And so, in the spirit of unraveling how nationalism evolves, our first bonus episode explores events in China where, after the Qing monarchy was successfully overthrown in a revolution, different groups fought for the right to be recognized as their true representatives of the people. This episode also honors the Chinese New Year. If you map the current Chinese New Year to the Gregorian calendar, it runs from January 23rd, 2023 to February 9th, 2024. Interestingly, the Chinese calendar has 12 zodiac signs, each represented by an animal. And this year is the year of the rabbit. In this episode, we will discuss the modern evolution of nationalism in China. And so, without much more ado, let us go down this rabbit hole. Modern historians tend to agree that the defining element of China's history in the 20th century was revolution and that it was driven by the forces of nationalism. Nationalist sentiment was so potent in the late 1920s that it swept the Nationalist Party to power in 1927. The Nationalists would rule China for the next 10 years, up to 1937. This period is known as the Nanjing Decade. The Nanjing Decade started when the centrist faction of the Nationalists conducted a bloody purge against left-leaning members of the party. This happened on April 12, 1927. Six days later, on April 18th, the Nationalists set up their government in Nanjing, led by Chiang Kai-shek. In the three decades before the Nationalists came to power, China experienced various political upheavals over control of its territory. At the start of the century, China was ruled by the Qing dynasty. Qing monarchs had been in charge for more than 250 years, and at the turn of the century, that control came under intense pressure from both domestic and international forces. Fueled by nationalism, a popular revolt broke out in October 1911, forcing the Qing to abdicate in February 1912. China became a republic, and a former imperial official Yuan Shikai was appointed president. But the downfall of the Qing was only the first of many political upheavals. As we uncover the tensions of the period in this episode, you will find that during the first half of the 20th century, China's history was a calendar of political conflict, warfare, and revolution. Yuan Shikai's presidency did not last long because, in 1916, he died just four years after his appointment. This created a vacuum and for the next decade, China lacked a strong central government, leaving administration to fall to regional leaders called warlords. It was in this atmosphere that the nationalists embarked on a military campaign to unite the country, culminating in their victory over the warlords and their accession to power in 1927. Interestingly, the nationalist government was eventually overthrown by Chinese communists in 1949. Some experts define these events as social revolutions because they combined thorough structural transformation and massive class upheavals. 
In other words, when successful revolutions happen, societal structures change because the revolting classes work with a shared purpose to overthrow the ruling class. But relying on shared aims alone is not enough. As we shall see, a precondition for successful rebellion is that the rebels must have the weapons to pull it off. A lot of times, it comes down to acquiring enough firepower to withstand and then overcome the military capability of the ruling class. All of the foregoing characterizes revolutions as a dispute between two things, structure and agency. In social theory, structure refers to those observable patterns along which societal relations are organized. For example, race relations define people as black, white, and brown, and gender relations define people as male or female. Also, employment relations separate employer from employee, and employees are split further into supervisor and supervised, while class relations recognize upper class, middle class, and lower class. By now, I'm sure you get the picture. In a sense, structure defines the relationship between the haves and the have-nots. On the other hand, agency is that individual human ability to demonstrate purpose, action, and independence, regardless of structure. At group level, agency requires not only autonomy, but also coordination and resilience. With these definitions, I'm sure you can better appreciate the conflict between China's revolutionaries and its ruling classes. There is a view that disagrees with analyzing China's history in sociological terms. According to this perspective, descriptions like nationalists and revolutionary tend to oversimplify the complex events of the period by obscuring their sequence and path dependency. <laughs> okay, what do those terms mean? In fact, what is this whole perspective trying to say? The answer lies in understanding sequence and path dependency. Sequence and path dependency are social science concepts that seek to understand the relationship between actions taken and the resulting outcomes. Those who propose looking beyond structure and agency are suggesting that sociopolitical phenomena like revolutions are not the outcomes of singular factors but depend on a variety of causes occurring in a particular sequence. Therefore, each revolution needs to be evaluated to understand the relationship between these factors and to see how the relationships led down the path to revolution. In other words, sequence and path dependency argue that the opposition between structure and agency are insufficient for understanding the process and outcome of revolution. We would encounter all these concepts of historical sociology throughout the course of this podcast and if they are still fuzzy at the moment, don't worry, they will become clearer as we walk through different historical events. I am confident that you will soon be deciding for yourself whether structure and agency are more important than sequence and path dependency, or vice versa. For this episode, these concepts give us different lenses through which we can view the emergence and growth of nationalism in China, which, as you can already tell, is both a historical and a sociological phenomenon. We would also analyze nationalism in the context of revolution and reflect upon the key ideological debates that shaped political contention in China in the early 20th century. By the time you have completed this episode, you would appreciate both the theoretical and practical points of conflict between the different proponents of nationalism in China, starting from the late Qing era to the Nanjing decade. Based on this knowledge, you would better understand China's evolution from a feudal monarchy to a modern, 
powerful and centralized nation-state. Now, let us take a good bite of this juicy tale. At the start of the 20th century, the Qing dynasty had ruled China for two and a half centuries. They came from Manchuria, in the northeast of China, and belonged to the Manchu, a minority ethnic group. Expanding from their homeland, the Qing overthrew the ruling Ming dynasty in 1644, and within a century, controlled China proper, that is, the inner regions principally populated by China's majority ethnic group, the Han, as well as Greater China, encompassing China proper and the territories on its fringes where many minorities originated, such as the Mongols, the Tibetans, and the Muslims of Xinjiang. It also included the islands of Hong Kong and Taiwan. The Manchus organized their troops into eight banners using the colors red, blue, white, and yellow, with four plain and four bordered. Under the banner system, the Qing developed administrative efficiency, managing military affairs, as well as directing civilian issues like population registration. The banner system was partly responsible for Qing's success. However, from the final decades of the 19th century and into the early years of the 20th, China was plagued by domestic rebellions and foreign threats. These problems were worsened by the fact that the Qing regime had grown weak. The external threats came from China's neighbors, Russia and Japan, as well as the powers of Western Europe. Between 1884 and 1910, Qing China lost its tributary states of Vietnam to France and Korea to Japan. In 1904, war broke out between Russia and Japan over who would control Southern Manchuria. This was Chinese territory and even the homeland of the Qing, and yet China had zero input over the affair standing by and watching while the Russo-Japanese war raged until 1905. Essentially, Qing China was weak. Some experts have stated that during this era, China was a novice in international politics. It adopted a program of self-strengthening, a process of upgrading the military that involved building and purchasing modern Western equipment. Despite these attempts at Westernization, China's military suffered from institutional and personnel weaknesses. Such weakness made Chinese territory a prime target for foreign exploitation. Thus, by losing Vietnam to France and then Korea to Japan, which itself had been a former tributary, Chinese pride was hurt, and the Qing drew heavy criticism for their inability to protect China. This cynicism was partly driven by ethnicity. As I mentioned earlier, the Qing were of the Manchu ethnic group, and as a minority, their right to rule China was contested especially by the Han, who made up 95% of the population. Challenges to Qing legitimacy based on ethnicity was not a new phenomenon. For instance, in the mid-19th century, the Qing faced a bloody insurrection known as the Taiping Rebellion. The Taiping Rebellion was a religious movement that wreaked havoc on China, bringing deaths to millions and in the process, devastating communities and the environment. The rebellion was led by Hong Shiquan, a former aspiring bureaucrat of Hakka origin who aligned himself with the Han. Hong incited his support base to rise against the Qing by demonizing their Manchu ethnicity. For almost 15 years, from 1851 to 1864, the Taiping rebels seized territory in China proper and in the last 11 years operated from a base established in Nanjing. The movement blended Christian values with Chinese canon and Buddhist ceremonies and in terms of the economy, devised communistic plans for administering society.
Yet, the Taiping Rebellion could not overthrow the Qing. Curiously, the Qing generally worked to uphold local traditions. In China proper, for instance, they based administration on Confucian principles just like earlier Chinese dynasties. Still, this devotion to Han traditions could not buy the loyalty required to uphold Qing legitimacy as the rulers of China. In the late 19th century, a movement to reform China's political system gained prominence among sections of the political class and the intelligentsia. The first intellectual to publish works that recommended reforms was Kang Youwei. His publications in 1891 and 1898 suggested that China reform its government based on Western models. Kang's concept was to modify the traditional state institutions through mild forms of popular sovereignty. His ideas were taken to the next level by a protégé named Liang Qichao. Liang was more revolutionary than Kang, promoting what has been called a strong flavor of nationalism. Liang argued that China could not compete with the West because its political culture and institutions were based on Confucian principles which were inappropriate for the age. He argued for national solidarity and nation-building. Liang took Kang's ideas further by promoting the participation of both the leaders and the led in government. This contrasted with the absolute powers China's monarchs had over their subjects. Interestingly, the Qing Emperor Guangzhou favored reform. He supported reform because China was unfavorably exposed to foreign interference as the 19th century wound down. He had lost the war over control of Korea to Japan in 1895 and also countries like Russia, France, Britain, Germany and Belgium laid claim to different parts of the Chinese Empire. To use a popular phrase, China was being sliced up like a melon. Hence, between June and September 1898, Guangzhou promoted a program called the 100 Days of Reform. It was a modernization project based on Western modes of education, industry, commerce, agriculture, communications, administration, finance, and defense. However, because Guangzhou's reforms threatened their power and status, conservative elements conspired with his foster mother, the Empress Dowager Kixi, to dethrone him. This crushed the reform movement, but in a twist of fate, Kixi started executing some of Guangzhou's reforms, especially those strengthening China against foreign influence. Qing opposition to foreign influence peaked in 1899 during an uprising known as the Boxer Rebellion. The Boxers targeted missionaries and Chinese Christians with the slogan, Revive the Qing and destroy the foreigner. Because the Boxers promoted Chinese culture, and railed against Western civilization, the royal court supported the unrest. This was ill-advised, but to make it worse, Kixi declared war on the international coalition of eight countries that entered China to protect their missionaries and other interests. The Boxer Rebellion was a poison chalice, but if we think about it, what options did the Qing really have? It is easy to say the Qing should have suppressed the Boxers, but given the nationalist nature of the rebellion, that would have made them even more unpopular than they already were. So, if they recognized the sweet-tasting liquid was fatal and yet chose to drink, then perhaps it was a choice to go down with the people. Militarily, China never stood a chance. The coalition drew forces from the United States, Russia, Britain, France, and Japan. In 1900, the Boxers were suppressed and the Qing defeated. 
Subsequently, severe penalties were imposed via the Boxer Protocol, ensuring that China entered the 20th century in defeat, poverty, and humiliation. Amongst other terms, the protocol stationed foreign armies in Beijing and imposed war reparations of $333 million on China. Payments were to be amortized over 39 years at an annual interest rate of 4%, bringing China's total war debt to $740 million. This was a staggering sum because China's annual income was only about $185 million. For ordinary Chinese, the Boxer Protocol underscored their belief that China's problem was its Manchu leaders. In retrospect, the Qing may have found it less costly to suppress the Boxer uprising. The aftermath significantly eroded their legitimacy and within a decade, the dynasty would be over. As Qing power waned, nationalist ideas spread. In 1905, a revolutionary alliance was formed to overthrow the Qing. The alliance was led by Sun Yat-sen and eventually became the Nationalist Party or Guomindang. Nationalism posed a threat to Qing rule and nationalist thinking identified the Qing as a threat to China. Chinese nationalism was significantly anchored on ethnicity and the Han majority did not like being ruled by the Manchu minority. Nationalism was also defined in terms of China's relationship with foreigners who were viewed as meddlesome and dangerous. Nationalist favor also gave voice to different marginalized groups. This included students, women, soldiers, and overseas Chinese. When Russia lost a war to Japan in 1905, Chinese calls for nationalist reforms gained impetus. It was the first time that an Asian nation defeated a European power in the modern era. The Qing court became more receptive to the idea of reform. Japan had grown strong through reform, and so, if Japan could do it, then perhaps China could do it too. The Qing reformed education, replacing civil service examinations with a school system based on Sino-Western curriculum. In terms of military reform, it abandoned the outdated banner system and gave imperial authority to establish a new army based on Western methods to an official named Yuan Shikai. This became known as the Beiyang Army. A key characteristic of the Beiyang Army was that it produced soldiers with a sense of loyalty to the nation and not to the Qing rulers. In fact, the nationalist loyalties of Beiyang troops and officers will be instrumental to the downfall of the Qing. In education, Western learning did not effectively or immediately replace Confucian models. Not only did this lead to knowledge gaps in existing governance systems and ideology, but it armed students with new worldviews to challenge the status quo. On the political front, Empress Kixi proposed a nine-year calendar over which constitutional reforms would be introduced. In August 1908, she announced a plan to set up provincial assemblies in 1909 and a national assembly in 1910, though both were only to be provisional bodies. Full legislative powers were to be realized in 1917. On the surface, this signaled a push towards political modernization. But, because it was the monarch granting the people a constitution, and not the people giving it to themselves, these moves served to vest real power in the throne. However, Empress Kixi died in November 1908. Curiously, Emperor Guangzhou, the nephew she had deposed and kept under house arrest since the coup of 1898, died the day before her. Some argue that she had him killed. Kixi was replaced by the infant Emperor Puyi, who had to rely on regents until he came of age. 
Police regents were Manchu and stuck to Kiggs' constitutional schedule. But clumsily, they populated his cabinet with Manchus, rousing Chinese suspicions that the reforms would be swayed to the benefit of the ruling dynasty. In other words, the regents did a lot to fuel rather than douse anti-Manchu tensions. Overall, Qing reforms were more successful in hastening dynastic demise than preserving its power. But it does seem that regardless of whether the Qing initiated reform or not, changes in popular ideology and leadership were inevitable. What we have discussed so far supports Max Weber's idea that historical changes are not monocausal. Why, you may ask, because clearly, Qing downfall was connected to both the empire's setup and collective action by the masses. Thus, in theoretical terms, we can attribute the rise of nationalism in China to both structure and agency. But this leaves other questions unanswered. For example, how do we classify the role of foreign actors? As an independent factor? Did it influence either of structure or agency? Or perhaps both? We can push the envelope a little further by asking if it was structure and or agency that determined the workings of foreign influence in the build-up to the fall of the Qing. Along similar lines, we might ask whether agency was shaped by structure and vice versa. Concerning revolutionary activity itself, if the Manchus were demonized as China's problem, then why did revolutions continue several decades after the Chinese were rid of them? We have established that Chinese nationalism during the late Qing was significantly rooted in anti-Manchu sentiments. In ethnic terms, nationalists defined themselves both in relation to whom they were and to whom they were not. But these demarcations were not always neat. Take nationalism's meaning. If, as Liang Qichao suggested, the nation of China was the Han ethnic group and nationalism was about liberation from the Manchu, then which people were to be liberated? The Qing Empire comprised many nationalities, including Han, Hakka, Tibetan, Mongol, and Uyghur, amongst others. One observer has written that the Qing generally tried to protect each nationality's cultural norms and political boundaries, although for central administration and government, they adopted the practices of the majority Han Chinese. The Qing must have believed that there was an advantage in pandering to the majority. On the other hand, the elevation of Han culture may have deepened their own beliefs of superiority. Whatever the case, the Qing adoption of Han political culture and its later introduction of Western-style reforms did not save the monarchy. Revolution broke out on October 10, 1911, and on January 1, 1912, China was declared a republic, bringing the era of empire to an end. That February, the Manchus abdicated the throne, and in August, elections to the National Assembly were conducted. The Nationalist Party won a majority in those elections. Political dissolution could have resulted in physical dissolution as well because, under the Qing, the provinces of Tibet and Mongolia had negotiated more autonomy with the help of Britain and Russia. After the Qing were overthrown, conditions existed for these regions to break away, but they did not. For the most part, the new republic retained its borders, losing only Outer Mongolia, the present-day country of Mongolia. Politically, post-Qing China was a contradiction. Although the Han were eager to obtain political freedom from the Manchu, they were not willing to extend the same liberty to the other nationalities. Rather, they sought to dominate a united China. This plan had self-serving undertones. By retaining control of minorities and their territories, 
then China proper, the geographical center of the Republic and home base of the Han, will be protected from foreign incursions. So, preserving the territories of ethnic minorities which made up China's frontiers would ensure foreign powers could not carve it up like a melon. As I mentioned, the risk of disintegration was real after the Qing fell. Both Tibet and Mongolia renewed attempts to become independent in the Republican era. These provinces relied on foreign intervention to achieve their aims. In 1912, Mongolia reached an agreement with Russia to pursue autonomy, and in 1914, the British declared support for Tibetan independence. However, it has been argued that China's fears of foreign imperialism were unfounded, as the foreign powers were not committed to self-determination for China's minorities. This was because they had to protect their economic investments from the previous era, and the United Republic was their best chance to achieve that. Furthermore, the Republic's new leaders had already expressed readiness to repay foreign debts from the Qing era. However, the threat from Japan was real and led to national solidarity. In 1915, Japan presented 21 demands to Yuan Shikai, covering a variety of political and economic rights that were seen as an attempt to undermine China's sovereignty. Japan was granted the economic privileges, but China rejected the political demands. Republican China was weak, but could not swallow the bitter pill of becoming Japan's vassal. Here, nationalistic ideals were at play. Qing weakness had led to territorial losses, and so, for the new republic, it was important to show strength by not losing any more territory. Close inspection reveals that nationalism was used to drive conflicting agendas. For the purpose of ending Qing rule, nationalism was about pointing out ethnic differences, but in order to keep the republic together, it became about ethnic unity and solidarity. Another way to interpret this is that Chinese nationalism was shaped by centuries of Qing reign. Or, to answer one of the questions we teased earlier, we can say that agency was shaped by structure. Yuan Shikai secured the presidency through political negotiations between Chinese imperial bureaucrats like himself and nationalists like Sun Yat-sen. Here, we can pause for a moment to ask why the masses had no role in choosing their new leader, even though it was their support the elites relied on to prove that the Qing were unpopular. This is a frequent feature of political organization. Power typically changes amongst the elites, while the masses serve as instruments that competing elites use to contest for it. In this specific instance, Yuan Shikai had been a respected member of the Qing establishment whom, as earlier described, revamped the imperial military by creating the new army. Yuan's presidency was marked by suppression of political activity and attempts to concentrate power in himself. He even tried to crown himself emperor, but withdrew when the plan was sharply criticized by both friends and foes. Sun Yat-sen and other nationalists refused to be subjected to another throne. In 1913, they attempted to overthrow Yuan in a second revolution, but he failed and they fled to Japan. But Yuan Shikai never succeeded in creating a strong central government for China. Uprisings were frequent and the menace of Japan loomed. In 1916, Yuan died of uremia and his demise weakened the state further because there was no central figure whom the different power brokers were willing to accept as their leader. Thus. Political power devolved to local strongmen known as warlords, several of whom were former protégés of Yuan Shikai in the new army. Warlordism brought an end to China's nascent democracy. The warlords controlled their individual territories in different ways, including through commerce, taxation, and extortion. 
By and large, military force was deployed for personal gain at the expense of the people. As Jonathan Spence observed, warlords espoused a variety of political views, including hopes of being reintegrated into a democratic republic and a belief that the nationalists were China's legitimate leaders. In Shaanxi province, the warlord Yan Shishan declared that he had succeeded in implementing the best features of militarism, nationalism, anarchism, democracy, capitalism, communism, individualism, imperialism, universalism, paternalism, and utopianism. Warlords were often in conflict with one another. These conflicts could take on massive proportions, such as the Second War between the Jili and Fengtian warlords in 1924, where the combined forces numbered up to 420,000 men. It is important to point out that central government did not entirely disappear in the warlord era. Rather, it was too weak to be effective. As a matter of fact, different warlords jostled to install and control the key figures of the central government in Beijing. And so, from 1916 to 1926, China had six presidents and 25 cabinets. When Yuan died, two leading generals of the new army, Feng Guozhang and Duan Kirui, respectively became president and premier. However, Feng and Duan soon parted company and each drew support from a different group of warlords. On the other hand, the death of Yuan led some warlords in the southwest, such as Tang Jiao in Yunnan and Lu Rongting in Guangxi to declare independence from the central government. The bottom line is that whether they were trying to control or break free from the center, real power in China lay with the warlords during this period. At this point, we can conduct a health check on nationalism to see how it fared in the warlord era. You may have asked yourself if nationalist agitation in the Qing and early Republican eras had mobilized against oppressive centralized authority, what did nationalism mobilize against during the warlord era of divided authority? We already noted that the warlords were frequently at war with one another. This led to frequently changing alliances amongst themselves. For instance, in 1920, Jiang Zuolin, the warlord of Manchuria, supported Wu Peifu of the Jili clique to defeat the Anfu group. But two years later, Jiang and Wu were at war. Another feature of warlordism was that different foreign powers supported different warlords. In these partnerships, the foreign powers could provide military and financial support while hoping to benefit if their chosen warlord took control of the center. In Shanghai, the warlords preferred the British, while the French were dominant in the southwest and in Manchuria, it was the Japanese. The warlord era was a period of suffering for ordinary Chinese. In addition to being extorted and exploited, conflicts between warlords provided a cover for banditry. All these alienated the masses. Experts have therefore argued that warlordism was the antithesis of nationalism. I think it makes sense. Consider the effect that such fragmentation must have had on the national spirit. In addition, the oppressors were no longer Manchu but fellow Chinese and, under their watch, Chinese were fighting against Chinese. Still, when Sun Yat-sen returned from Japan in 1916, he attempted to strengthen the Nationalist Party through partnerships with the warlord of Guangzhou. Sun understood the benefit of backing political organization with military power, but no results came of those arrangements. In 1918, Germany and the Central Powers were defeated in World War I, 
and the next year, the victorious allies met for post-war settlement at the Conference of Versailles. Amongst other punishments, Germany lost its overseas colonies and territories to the victors, but China was snubbed despite its support for the allies. The province of Shandong, which Germany had controlled, was handed over to Japan. For the Chinese, this humiliation was immoral and unacceptable, and it was made worse by the quarter century of tense relations they shared with Japan since they lost the Sino-Japanese War of 1894-1895. On May 4, 1919, 3,000 students marched in protest from Tiananmen Square to the foreign legation quarters in Beijing. The protests gathered popular support and spread nationwide, becoming known as the May 4th Movement. In Shanghai, it was so popular that it morphed into a general strike. The May 4th Movement was driven by nationalist ideals and strong notions of patriotism. The movement's objective was to externally preserve Chinese sovereignty and internally eliminate national traitors. Hence, transferring Shandong to Japan rather than handing it back to China was an attack on Chinese sovereignty. Now, recall that this was the warlord era and often the warlords were susceptible to foreign influence. More generally, warlordism was anchored on regional political organization which technically made it incompatible with the nationalist ideologies of the May 4th movement. However, one contemporary analysis has re-examined the relationship and argues that some warlords supported the May 4th movement. The reasons for this support range from individual attitudes to narrow, sometimes sectarian, and even public interests. For instance, the Guangzhou military government had a representative named C.T. Wang in the Chinese delegation to Versailles, so it supported the movement. In Guizhou, a power tussle between the military governor Liu Xianxi and the provincial army commander Wang Wenhua led both to declare support for the movement. Each hoped that doing that would bring the youths and students into their corner. On the other hand, the May 4th movement became a basis for some warlords to resume conflict. Led by Premier Duan Kirui, who also led the warlord faction from Anhui, the central government in Beijing supported the cession of Shandong to Japan. This was because of secret dealings between Beijing and Japan during the war, and it was based on those dealings that the Allies supported Japan's claim to Shandong. The Guangzhou military government saw this as a betrayal and a good reason to attack the central government. Regardless of whether the warlords were temporarily united or further divided by the May 4th movement, its net effect was the weakening of their collective political position. The movement created a patriotic spirit that invested Chinese passions in nationalist ideas and this undermined the hold of the warlords. The movement called for urgent reforms, including the evolution of Chinese statecraft to enable China assess itself in the face of foreign imperialism. Hence, the May 4th movement is ranked amongst the most important developments of nationalism and revolution in 20th century China. Based on the foregoing, we can answer more of those theoretical questions about structure and agency. Here, we can see that agency shaped structure. And, if we consider why the movement even started, then it is evident that foreign influence shaped both structure and agency. The origins of communism in China can be traced to this period. It has been argued that Chinese communism was a product of the May 4th movement. The movement gave birth to several political study groups and one was dedicated to studying the political and scientific successes of Bolshevism in Russia.
This was the Shanghai Marxist Study Group. It became the first cell of the Chinese Communist Party. The attraction of communism may have been connected to Russia's success in removing autocratic rulers and modernizing itself. Whatever the case, communism offered an alternative pathway that China could take. One student at Beijing University returned home to Hunan province to create a similar study group. His name was Mao Zedong. Communism and nationalism were ideologically different. But in the 1920s, the Soviet Union offered revolutionary expertise and funding to Sun Yat-sen and the Nationalist Party. In exchange, the Nationalists opened party membership to Chinese communists. Under Soviet tutelage, the Nationalists became a formidable political organization and they built a respectable military apparatus called the National Revolutionary Army NRA. But before Sun Yat-sen could realize his dreams, he died on March 12, 1925. A power tussle ensued in which Chiang Kai-shek, commandant of the NRA's training academy at Wampua, emerged as the leader of the Nationalist Party. That May, almost exactly six years after the May 4th movement, China faced a similar phenomenon of strikes and demonstrations. These events became known as the May 30th movement and some scholars contend that the nationalist spirit it engendered created a springboard for Chiang and the National Revolutionary Army to take control of China. It all began on May 30, 1925, when a delegation of the Shanghai police, led by a British inspector, opened fire on a public protest, killing 11. The police wasn't a bad situation because, earlier in May, a factory guard, who was Japanese, had killed a striking textile worker, who was Chinese. It was this and other infractions by foreigners that caused the initial protest. After the police killed rioters, unrest spread quickly through China. The next year, 1926, Chiang led the NRA on a campaign of conquest called the Northern Expedition. The plan was to conquer the warlords and then reunite China under a strong nationalist party-led central government. The Northern Expedition was successful. It grew Chiang's reputation and gave nationalism a boost. Although there were battles during the expedition, some experts say that the nationalists prioritized grassroots organization over actual fighting and it was based on this campaign's success that they formed a government. Historically, the Northern Expedition has been presented as the climax of national consciousness that flowed from the May 30th movement. In this view, May 30th galvanized the demoralized people to stand in solidarity against oppressors, both foreign and local. However, the historian Arthur Waldron disagreed with the level of significance given to the May 30th movement. He did not believe that changes in national consciousness could explain why the NRA initiated war or its eventual success. Instead, he claimed that constant warfare had weakened the warlords and thus their individual and collective abilities to withstand Chiang. Along similar lines, he contended that the May 30th movement would have lost steam if the Beijing government had suppressed the demonstrations and instilled public order. But it had also been weakened by civil war. Waldron's point is that the Nationalist Party rose to power because of war and not because of nationalism or social revolution. This is a strong argument. For example, at the start of the expedition, the NRA could only muster 100,000 soldiers, incomparable to the 420,000 men deployed during the Second Jili Fengtian War. 
Essentially, Chiang's army was way smaller than the forces available to all the warlords, but Chiang's army was better organized. Also, the fact that the mid 30th movement spread its speed and lasted for a whole year supports Waldron's idea that civil war had destroyed Beijing's ability to maintain public order. In other words, success was not guaranteed by a strong nationalist spirit but became inevitable because existing power centers were too weak to resist the nationalists. Theoretically, we see that Waldron prefers structure over agency to explain the nationalist rise to power. However, this perspective has weak points. For one, Waldron ignores the determination and historical precedent at play when Chiang and the NRA marched to war. With far fewer troops, it took a lot of guts for the NRA to take on several warlords and the Beijing government. Moreover, the weakness of the Qing government before it was overthrown was a good precedent that the nationalists could look up to. Secondly, the fact that the May 30th movement could organize protests for over a year undermines Waldron's thesis of structure over agency. Evidence of collective action can be found in the grassroots mobilization that preceded the NRA's expedition. Overall, we can say that the nationalists conducted a successful social revolution. The sociologist Tidas Kokpol argues that social revolution has three basic features. One, the collapse of central administrative and military machineries. Two, widespread peasant rebellions. And three, marginal elite political movements. In the warlord era, the Beijing government represented the first feature. The second was the May 30th movement and the third, the Nationalist Party. All three meshed together to put the Nationalists in power. Based on the foregoing, we can see that structure and agency were both crucial in China's power games of the 1920s. After the Nationalist Party took control of China, Chiang Kai-shek set up government in the city of Nanjing. Nationalist rule began with an intense act of repression. On April 12, 1927, they conducted a bloody purge of the communists in their ranks. Recall that back when the Soviet Union helped Sun Yat-sen to build up the nationalists, communists were admitted into the party. But it was a union of strange bedfellows. Now in charge of the country, but worried about the growing power and influence of communists and thus the potential threat they posed to his government, Chiang ordered their elimination from the nationalist party. Hundreds were killed and thousands fled. But purging the communists did not settle internal rivalries. Within the first five years of nationalist rule, rivals purged Chiang from the party. Twice. And yet, because his reputation was so high, he was asked to return and lead the government on both occasions. The purges and triumphant returns only served to make Chiang stronger. For 10 years, from 1927 to 1937, the nationalist government operated from Nanjing, which is why the period is called the Nanjing Decade. By 1932, Chiang was its most powerful figure. Still, China was never completely united under the nationalists, either in political or military terms. Some territory remained under warlords, but a more serious challenge came from the communists who, after the purge of 1927, started to rebuild themselves with help from the Soviet Union. Chiang was determined to quash these threats and by 1934 had conducted five annihilation campaigns against the communists alone. Yet, the biggest threat to nationalist rule came from Japan. Japan tried to use Jiang Zuolin, the warlord of Manchuria, to undermine the nationalists. 
1928, it emerged that Jiang would rather cooperate with the nationalists than with Japan. And so, the Japanese blew up his train as he returned from a meeting with Chiang. In September 1931, Japan overran Manchuria and in 1932, declared that it was an independent state called Manchukuo. The last Qing Emperor, Puyi, was installed by the Japanese as puppet head of state in Manchukuo. Contrary to popular expectation, the nationalists did not respond to these acts of Japanese aggression despite their manifesto which swore to protect China's territory and sovereignty. They simply could not meet the challenge from Japan. This failure was viewed by many Chinese as treasonous. When the Qing were overthrown, it was partly because they could not stop foreign powers from seizing China's territory. Thus, nationalist inaction was deemed to be anti-nationalistic. But Chiang had his reasons. Japan was much stronger than China, so his policy was to avoid direct confrontation. Between 1933 and 1935, Japan made a series of demands from China, including the handover of territory equivalent to the US states of Virginia, Maryland, and West Virginia, the creation of a demilitarized zone the size of Connecticut, and the assignment of control over all Western aid and development programs in China to Japan. In total, there were eight demands and Chiang accepted all but one. All of this hurt Chinese pride and to compound these problems, the nationalists were attempting to annihilate the communists. This was viewed in bad light by ordinary people and the question they kept asking was, why should Chinese be fighting Chinese while the Japanese are eating us alive? The communists also called on the nationalists to unite and fight Japan. Late in 1936, Chiang's policy of avoiding direct confrontation suffered a serious setback. He was kidnapped by one of his generals, Zhang Zueliang, who only agreed to release him if he promised to unite with the communists to fight Japan. Two weeks later, Chiang agreed and was released. He could no longer avoid war with Japan. On July 7, 1937, war broke out between China and Japan. Initial Chinese resistance was stiff, but eventually, the superior might of Japan prevailed. Chiang and his government fled before Japanese troops entered the capital, bringing the Nanjing decade to an end. The violence visited on Nanjing by the Japanese was inexplicable. Kitskopa described scenes that were horrific and extreme in cruelty. People were roasted or buried alive. Old men and women were tied up and thrown into icy rivers to drown. Women and young girls were raped and mutilated. Babies were thrown into the air and caught on bayonets. This ferocious violence lasted from December 1937 to January 1938 and is infamously known as the Rape of Nanjing. In 1939, World War II broke out and split the world powers into Allied and Axis camps. Japan joined Germany and Italy to form the Axis, while China joined the Allies comprising Britain and France and later the United States. The Axis was defeated in 1945 and Japan evacuated the territory it held in China. In no time, the intense rivalry between nationalists and communists resurfaced. In 1946, civil war broke out and although Chiang's forces first had the upper hand, they eventually lost to the communists, led by Mao Zedong. On October 1, 1949, Mao declared the formal establishment of the People's Republic of China. On his part, Chiang and the nationalist government fled 
to Taiwan. And so, my dear friends, that was the end of nationalist rule in China and technically the end of our tale. But I want to tie everything we have discussed in a neat little bow for you. Formerly, the nationalists were in power from 1927 to 1949 when they were displaced by the communists. But in practice, they only enjoyed a period of somewhat steady rule for 10 years between 1927 and 1937. And even then, I applied the term steady rule with some caution because in that period, the nationalist party was racked by internal turmoil. This episode set out to discuss how nationalism emerged, grew, and ascended to power in China. We considered it within the context of the different social revolutions that shaped China in the early decades of the 20th century and analyzed both theoretical and practical arguments. So, for each of the governmental periods before the Nanjing decade, we described and explained the issues at stake and took different viewpoints into consideration. By looking at the struggle for China in the early 20th century, there are many things we can learn that will be relevant for our study of nationalism in Africa. We have established two central features of nationalism in China, both of them linked. The first was anti-imperialist feelings and the second was the need to protect China's sovereignty. In the Qing era, foreign imperialism exposed China's weakness and the Qing were scorned for failing to defend China's territory. Imperialism within China was also a problem. Worse still, as Manchus, the ethnicity of the Qing became a basis for questioning their legitimacy. Nationalist ideologues created the stereotype of foreigners or others to generate anti-Manchu feelings amongst the masses. For ordinary Chinese, Manchu rule meant foreign rule and these foreign rulers were allowing other foreigners to divide China like a piece of cake. Ethnicity and race were central to nationalism in the Qing era. However, when the Qing fell, nationalism took on a new flavor. Whereas it was used to depict the Qing as foreigners, in the new republic led by Yuan Shikai, it was used to keep all minorities, including the Manchus, inside China. Clearly, nationalism was malleable. But, in the Republican era, it was still defined by anti-imperialism and the need to defend China's sovereignty against predators like Japan. In the warlord era, nationalism became the driving force of protest movements. The May 4th movement promoted cultural rebirth, seeking to replace old ways with the new. Calls for nationalism were shaped by the humiliation of losing territory to Japan despite being on the winning side of World War I. Once again, sovereignty and anti-imperialism were at stake. In the May 30th movement, nationalism galvanized similar ideas in opposition to the oppressive attitudes of foreigners in China. From theoretical perspectives, we spoke about structure and agency and the extent to which each or both influenced the development of nationalism. Depending on the circumstances, different dynamics were usually at play. For instance, Waldron asserted that structure was the defining factor that led to the rise of the nationalists after the Northern Expedition, but our analysis shows that in that situation, agency was just as important. The downfall of the Qing and the rise of the nationalists both prove Weber's theory that rejects monocausality and Skokpo's theories of social revolution. A major contradiction of Chinese nationalism is that it rejected foreign imperialism but relied on its tools, technology, and political frameworks to protect China's sovereignty. 
from military technology and education to international conferences like Versailles, the Chinese had no independence or capable means of fending off imperialists without relying on foreign imputes. Another contradiction lies in the mutual origins of communism and nationalism. In addition to shared connections with the May 4th movement, the nationalists could only start to organize effectively after being trained by Soviet communists. They also accepted Chinese communists as members, implementing similar development programs and strategies. Chang and Halliday notes that when Chiang died in 1975, Mao mourned for a whole day. One has to wonder, since both leaders had so much in common, including training and methods of administration, what then was nationalism? The story I have told also has its limitations. A major one is that I relied on sources in English. It is possible that some misinterpretations of original Chinese texts may exist in my sources or my understanding. Also, based on limited familiarity with naming conventions, my pronunciations may have been imperfect. In addition, due to space constraints, I have not elaborated some events, terms and ideas, such as the geographical boundaries of China proper and Greater China, or the intricacies of Confucian thoughts and its links to imperial civil service. Also, I did not dwell on the tenets of communism. Finally, the discussion of nationalist rule is limited because a full-time study of their time in power was out of scope. The main objective was to show how nationalism emerged, developed, and rose to power. This episode has analyzed China's relationship with nationalism in the early 20th century, a period when it transformed from an empire to a nation-state. The lessons of this episode will be useful for studying the history of nationalism in Africa, especially within the context of understanding the challenges faced by multi-ethnic societies that are struggling to emerge from oppressive systems of foreign political domination. Next time, we will move forward with our story, but go back in time as we pick up our narrative in 19th century Europe. With knowledge of the era's geopolitics as a background, we will see how nationalism and other post-enlightenment ideas developed on the continent, building a sense of consciousness about modernity and the role that Europe had to play in the world.